always had a mirror in our house. And when I was a kid, I'd make faces in it. I'd experiment with different ways that I might look. Sometimes it would steam up. I'd draw a little face on there and see if I could match my facial expression. My mom would say, if you make those faces, your face will stick that way. I was like, it hasn't yet. <laughs> Always there. As I got a little bit older, I started to recognize things about my face that changed. And I'd spend time trying to get my hair just to look exactly the right way. I wasn't exactly sure why. I found my dad's shaving cream and I put it on my face and there was nothing there to shave off, but experiment with it anyway. <laughs> I'd pop pimples and see if I could get them to stick on the glass. <laughs> You did it too. Don't act like you don't act like you never were like, check this out. <laughs> yeah, it's gross. I'm not gonna deny that. I'd note every new spot on my face. And there were days when the mirror was a friend and the days when the mirror was an enemy. When I'd look at the mirror and I would not like what I saw. Instead of seeing Myself, I saw all every flaw, every area where I could improve, every place that was broken. And I remember looking into a mirror the day that I got dumped. And I think it's important to specify that at the end of a relationship because sometimes we're like, oh, it's mutual. No, it's fine. We're fine. We're fine. I've been fine. <laughs> we both agreed. They initiated the conversation, and I just kind of agreed. After a long-term relationship, it ended in college, one that I thought would end in marriage. I remember looking into a mirror and saying, like, who are you? What, what, what are you even worth now, apart from that person? I remember looking into a mirror several years later, and the day before, uh, the, the morning of my wedding, and just kind of saying, like, this is the last time you'll see yourself just as you. There are days that I smiled at myself before I left, and there are days that I looked at my reflection and I thought, I just don't know if I can keep it together. And that question remained, who are you? Always lingered, even explicitly, but sometimes just in the back of my mind as you look at yourself in the mirror every morning, there's that question, who is this person looking back at me? As your identity develops and as you change and as you your hairstyle changes and your clothing changes and your activities change and, and you change. What is underneath? I want to recap where we've been and I want to throw out a challenge. What we're presenting to you is the church's view on identity, the church's view on masculinity, on femininity, ultimately on sexuality, on integration. And within our world right now, that's not necessarily always viewed very positively. And so to be clear, you can reject everything that I'm saying. You can reject what the church says, and the church says you have the free will to do that. Absolutely. And there's a lot of people who present a lot of different ways that you can proceed to find happiness, ways that you can integrate identity, ways that you can claim who you are. And you're free to accept and listen to those things as well. But know that here, 
What I want to present is what the church teaches, and you can take it or leave it. And if you do, I will love you no less, and God will love you no less. But what is presented here is a path to freedom. But why? Why do we need a path to freedom? We began recognizing we're made in the image and likeness of God, that God created you uniquely and loves you uniquely, that God created humanity uniquely and has a special place for humanity. You're not like the animals. You're not like the trees. You're not like the rest of nature. You're unique and special. God's very life is placed within you, and you were made for a special relationship with God. When you look in the mirror, what you see staring back at you is a living icon of God. If you ever wanted to know what does God look like, what, what does God feel, what emotions does God have, simply look at you. And there staring back is God. This morning we talked about how God creates each of us, creates masculinity and femininity, and those things reflect God in unique ways. We talked about how this First man and woman in Genesis, they're a special relationship. They complement one another. They need one another. They complete one another. Men in this room, without the women around you, you are far less than you ever could be. You need them. And ladies, look at the men in the room. You need them. They bring things that you cannot, and men, the ladies, bring something that we cannot. Together, taken as a whole, we provide this beautiful picture of who God is. But to separate us one from the other is to diminish humanity itself. We also learned that in Genesis, God establishes these three relationships and the relationships are just. They make sense with God and humanity, with humanity among itself, and with humanity in creation. Life is good. But since we do know the story, we know that it doesn't necessarily stay that way. A new character winds up on the scene and if you'll recall, there's one command that Freedom requires, because love requires a choice. You have to be able to choose love. Some people say, well, why would God provide an opportunity for Adam and Eve to disobey? A similar question is, why would there be a hell? Why do people even teach that there's a hell? Because love requires a choice. If God does not give you a choice, God does not love you. He's a tyrant. He has to allow you the opportunity to reject him. And so this choice is embodied in a tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the only stipulation is that you don't eat from this particular tree. And so a new character comes on the scene in the form of a serpent, and it engages a conversation with the woman and says, did God say you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? And the woman said, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree of the, in the midst of the garden tree of the knowledge of good and evil, neither shall you touch it lest you die. To even get so close as to be tempted by it is to risk death. And the serpent said, you won't die. God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be open. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And so the woman sees the tree is good for food and that it's a delight to the eyes. And she took its fruit and ate and gave some to her husband who was with her. They were both, uh, their eyes were opened, and they saw they were naked and sewed fig leaves to protect themselves. Now something has happened. Humanity has chosen against God for itself. This is not vacation Bible school stuff. 
Because this story, if we look at it, it's not something that happened. It happens. It happens every time we choose something other than God. It happens the moment that you're like, rather than reconcile with that person, I'm going to gossip about them. Rather than, rather than recognizing the dignity and worth in one of my brothers or sisters, I'm going to use them. Rather than, than loving and forgiving one of my parents when they wrong me, I'm going to be angry at them. Because I should be able to choose and make the decisions for right and wrong. This is different than making a free choice. It's saying, I will stand in the place of God. But there are disastrous results. Now suddenly creation, which was this mirror that could see things perfectly, people who could see in one another a reflection of God without shame, who had a relationship with God without division, who lived in creation in harmony, all of that is shattered. And so the reflection's broken. Something has happened that cannot be undone. And sin and death enter the world. For the first time, chaos has started to return. And people no longer can see themselves clearly. The results of this are disastrous and immediate. God finds humanity and they hide. What do you do? When, like when you were a kid, if you did something wrong, if you broke the rules, you probably weren't like, mom and dad, I broke the rules. You went and hid. You went under your covers. You went into the closet. I guess that's what I did. If I broke a rule and I knew I was about to get found out the day that I like uprooted my mother's flowers, the time you know, that I broke uh, my dad's, um, like, he had a bunch of colored, my dad was an artist, so he had a bunch of, like, very nice colored pencils, and I busted them all. I don't know why I did it. I was just, like, in this weird mood. I hid. I was afraid. I was afraid of the consequences, and so humanity hides in the garden. And again, this isn't a story that happened. It happens. When you sin, when you've done something wrong, maybe even this weekend, you felt something that's like, I need to run. And maybe you've said it in a variety of ways. I don't belong here. This is for other people. This isn't for me. I'm not one of these holy people with their hands out singing. I need to hide. Or maybe something different where you said, God doesn't want anything to do with me. Like, you don't know where I've been. You don't know where I've done. You don't know like, what I'm struggling with. Maybe you've even said, I'm one of those people that like, the, you don't understand, the church hates me. I'm one of those people that the, the church hates. They don't want anything to do with me. Or you found some way to hide. In Genesis 3, God actually, God actually goes seeking Adam and Eve. He goes looking for them. This is a theme through Scripture. God always goes looking for us, even when we hide. And he calls out and says, what, why are you hiding? And they're like, we, we needed to cover up. We needed to hide ourselves from you. We realized that we were naked. Distortions have entered their relationship with God. They once believed that God was all good and would provide for them, that would protect them, and now they're afraid of God. They fear the God who provides for them, and they can't look at each other without feeling shame. They see each other, and there's distortions even with the man and the woman. Lust enters the world. 
Now instead of seeing each other totally as they are and saying, I can accept that without any ill will or any bad purpose, the desire to use and to dominate one another comes into the picture. God spells out these consequences. He says, because you've done this, because you've chosen against the plan, because you've chosen against your design, because you've betrayed our relationship, life is going to be different. It's one thing that when we sin against God, you've never seen God. You've never had this deep personal conversation with him face to face. There are points in our faith where we come very close to that, but you've never had like that kind of moment. It's one thing to insult somebody. Here's one way to visualize it. It's one thing to insult somebody over social media you've never met, to leave a really snarky comment on like an Instagram picture or to, to tweet something rude at them, someone you've never met. And it has a certain break in a relationship. But if I tweet something crass at Justin Bieber, life goes on. Now if I look at one of you face to face and insult you, that has a completely different effect, doesn't it? Humanity's not distant from God. They've chosen directly against someone who's right there. It's not some far-removed thing. So the break is severe. And it's immediate. And so God says, because of this, and he looks at the man, he says, creation, which has just up until now given you everything, will become harsh. You were taken from the ground. Now you're going to have to work the ground. And one day you're going to return to the ground. You're going to die because of this. That's the consequences of our sin. He looks at the man and the woman and says, now between the two of you, you're going to have a desire and a tendency to use one another and to dominate one another, to extort one another, to hurt one another. You're going to have this inclination to sin. We call that inclination concupiscence. Originally, humanity was made innocent, made very good, and they had an inclination to innocence. Now, every person is born with an inclination to sin. If left on our own, it's what we'll choose. And sin ultimately is destruction and death because it's a distortion of what God wants for you and for me. Now, this story doesn't, it's not that it happened, it happens, right? You see the distortions of this all of the time. In a few weeks, the Super Bowl will come to San Jose, Super Bowl 50. And along with it, tens of thousands of people trafficking other humans for sexual exploitation. That's not the way it's supposed to be. That's such a grave, moral, horrific evil, and God did not design the world that way. We made it so. Because in our heart, there's a brokenness and there's an emptiness and a desire for more that we have filled with sin. You experience it even in the small breaks in your relationships. And so the world kind of descends back into chaos. In scripture, things go from this first sin of disobedience. The next sin in scripture, the next one that's recorded, is murder. That's the next sin. We go from, from disobedience to murder. The second sin, murder. And throughout the Old Testament, things continue to descend into chaos. It's a record of God's attempts to reach out to humanity and fulfill promises, but of humanity's repeated attempts to say, no, nah, we don't want it. I don't want your plan. I don't want your prophets. I don't want your freedom. I don't want your happiness. I want my golden God. I want my own rules, even though they're killing me. 
It's like offering people, here's one cup of delicious, fresh-squeezed orange juice, and this cup has rat poison in it. But you get to choose, and continually people are like, nah, I want the poison. Bring it over here. At one point in the book of Judges, a book that recounts a history of Israel where people ruled them called judges, people who were put in place to settle disputes. They weren't kings because there was no, to be no king but God. Eventually there are kings, but this is a time of judges. And at the very end of that book, there's rape, dismemberment, mass murder, kidnapping, and genocide. All perpetuated by the chosen people. And you read through it and you're like, what just happened? It's super R-rated. This is in the Bible? And the last line, the last line of Judges is this. In those days, there was no king in Israel. And every person did what was right in their own eyes. That bears repeating. It's the last line of this book. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and every person did what was right in their own eyes. They made the rules. They made the choices. And the consequences were utterly disastrous. Humanity, once elevated and created in the image and likeness of God, just can't even see itself through the brokenness that exists. Along comes violence, war, distortions in our sexuality, distortions in relationships among men and women. But God has a plan. You see, God never leaves us alone, and God continually, as he sought out Adam and Eve in the garden that day, sought out humanity, sought out to redeem us. God even promised, in Genesis 15, there's a passage where God promises a redeemer to humankind. God's not going to leave things in chaos. He has a plan to bring restored order. And this plan exists in Jesus Christ. That's why we have a Savior. That's why we need one. In one of the small groups I sat on this afternoon, and I'll have an opportunity to sit on, on a couple more groups because I'd love to hear your feedback and your discussions and just be a part of that with you. But somebody was talking about uh, how they were discussing uh, Aristotle's philosophy in class. How Aristotle would talk about how if we want an end at the end of our life, whether it's heaven or something else, we have to work through a certain means. We do things to get to the end. It makes sense, right? The only flaw in that is you can't fix this. Nothing you can do can destroy or erase your own sin. You personally are powerless over it. Nothing you can do. Nothing you can do can make God love you any less, though. But nothing you can do can make God love you any more. You are incapable as a sinful person of restoring this mirror. It's shattered and it's busted. Now, for some of you, right now, you may be thinking, I know exactly where those places are. I don't, I don't have, you're self-aware enough and I'm self-aware enough that you know where your life has been cracked and where maybe you've put the cracks in it, where you've slammed the hammer through that mirror, where you're like, I can tell you, I can tell you exactly where my life is shattered and broken. And all you need to do is just look through what I've been on on my iPhone the past three weeks. I can tell you because it was the first relationship I got into as a sophomore in high school when I really believed that person when they said they loved me. And how two weeks later, all of that person's friends knew and how that person wanted nothing to do with me. I don't have to even pull these it's like abstract examples. I've been in youth ministry for 10 years. I've sat with people crying and broken with these things 
They're real examples, and I know that they happen. There are places in my life where I've broken and shattered my image and worth, where I've given it away, where I've thought that that was a better path. And sometimes the mirror becomes so shattered, you're like, there's no hope of recovery for how I've given my dignity and my worth away, for where I've sinned. There are some of you, though, and I've walked with your brothers and sisters who shared these experiences where you feel a brokenness and a crack, but it's not because of anything you chose to do. It's because of a sinful and horrible decision that someone chose to do to you. And if that's you, I want to just speak this. There's healing and there's hope. That what you did and what you suffered and maybe the area where you feel broken is not your fault. That if you're a victim of someone else's selfishness or greed or lust or sin, that you are not guilty of that. But you probably understand the break that it can cause in your life. And that within the walls of the church, there's places for healing and hope. That in the world, there's agencies that will help bring that healing and that hope. And that if that's you, I don't want you to take what I'm saying about sin or the ways that maybe our identity or, or worth is broken and think that I'm applying it to that situation because it's not the same. But how do we find redemption? How do we bring healing to this so we can see ourselves as an image and likeness of God again, when the image can be so broken. God sends Jesus Christ, his only son, to pay the price for our sins, which is ultimately death. And it's no surprise that when we talk about theology of the body, that God sent a savior with a human body. This is one of the greatest mysteries and greatest hopes in our faith, that Jesus Christ took on your and my human flesh. So that when Jesus suffers on a cross, when we look at this crucifix, that's a real body that hung on that cross. It's not, it's not like Jesus had some spiritual body or sense that, like, you know, kind of looked like he died. Jesus felt every bit of suffering, every nail, every whip. He endured it all for us so that we would be redeemed, but that our bodies could also be redeemed. That Jesus took on flesh to redeem what had been broken in our flesh. That Jesus felt all of the same things that we feel in our brokenness. The physical pain and suffering we feel. The emotional pain and suffering we feel. Jesus was abandoned, betrayed. Stripped naked. Often on these crucifixes we put a little loincloth over Jesus' body. But that's not how Jesus hung on that cross. They took everything. And hung him up with nothing. It's so funny that like we're st we still have this kind of uncomfortability with that. But Jesus hung naked on a cross to die. Broken and bruised so that we could be redeemed. That's the only way that this gets healed is through that, that cross and through the blood that Jesus sheds. And through that, there's new meaning and there's hope. And the hope is this. That what we're left with after this is broken, what we're left with from that garden is a desire. 
And it's a desire for community, and it's a desire for love, and it's a desire for affirmation. All of us have this built into us. We have an innate desire to worship something because we're created by God. And so God kind of gives us this internal GPS of how we get back to him. And again, even an atheist worships something, whether it's science or humanism, whether it's the greater good or morality or the pursuit of reason, everybody worships something. You have something at the center of your life. It exists. If you want to know what it is, think about what you spend the most time on. That's what you worship. Like the most, the most, um, the most thoughtful time. You might say, oh, so I worship school. I'm at school eight hours a day. Are you, but I mean, mentally, are you really at school eight hours a day? <laughs> Where does your mind drift to when you're just kind of daydreaming? What do you put the most time and energy into? What do you worship? Everybody's life is designed to worship something because you were created for nothing less than to worship God. But sometimes we settle for less because our life is broken and we don't always know how to get home. And we are desiring community. We desire relationships with one another. We desire friendships. We desire love and affirmation in romantic relationships. We desire to feel a connection with another person. And sometimes this leads us to very holy and happy friendships, to wonderful romantic relationships that have appropriate boundaries and elevate us. But sometimes it leads us to use one another. That in my pursuit to feel whole and affirmed, that I would use another person for a night, for a week, for a year, so that I could feel that even just for a moment. And sometimes we don't have to necessarily realize it, but that a relationship we may be in is not marked by being free, total, faithful, and fruitful. And here's a simple rundown of that. A relationship that the church says can be truly elevated, where a place where maybe like sexual activity can be the best, is a place where it's free, total, faithful, and fruitful. That it's freely given one to another. It's not coerced. It's not forced. It's consensual. So maybe if you're thinking about a relationship, you're like, yep, that's that. It's consensual. It's total. It holds nothing back, which probably is not true. Because if I were to sit down with anybody and say, hey, you're not married. Um, if you're having sex, you cool with having a baby? They're going to be like, no, man, we are definitely taking measures to avoid that. Then you're holding back the gift of your fertility. You have the power and the image and likes of God to create new life. Which means it's not fruitful either because no fruit can spring forth from it. There's not any possibility. And is it faithful? Is it lifelong? My father said at Mass, is it a lifelong thing? Are you looking at another person saying, this, I'm committed here to it being lifelong? The answer is probably no. Now here's the thing. You can disagree with me on that. You can be like, that's stupid and that's a dumb thing to say and you're dumb for saying it and you're all of these other things and a teacher in school told me about hateful, bigoted people like you in the church and I get it. Fine. But what you can't run from is the honest assessment you're making of yourself right now where you're like, ah, oh, but he is a little bit right. Why do I feel crappy after we do that? Why do I have the lingering question that she doesn't really love me? That he's probably going to abandon me. Why do I worry about what's on his phone all the time? You can't run from that. So think what you will. But your feelings are something you can't run from. And if you return to this, look, I've run from this talk all through high school and through college. And yet, a great irony is here I am giving it smashing mirrors. You can't run from your heart. Because God designed it. But there are ways of fulfilling that desire that then come through Christ. That Christ redeems it and says there are places where it can be expressed.
that you can give yourself to another in self-gift, some of you will be called to do that through marriage. And Jesus redeems marriage and, and elevates it through the redemption of his body. He says marriage isn't about divorce. That's the first reading we heard. And to, be, to clarify something in that reading, divorce was a man's game in Jesus' time. As, uh, as Bishop said, you could divorce a woman just because you didn't like the way she cooked. And so there's no equality, there's no self-sacrifice there. It's all about my needs and my wants. But Jesus says marriage is about something more. It's about giving yourself to one another. In the next line, Jesus says not everybody's called to that. Some people are called to give themselves completely to the church, to the kingdom. That Jesus says in the order of creation, there's more than one way to fulfill desire for love, for acceptance, for community. For some of you who are called to marriage... Sex will be a part of that. But here's the caveat that maybe you've never heard from a talk like this. Sex is not the greatest good in the world. I think sometimes we accidentally make it seem that way. When you hear like a chastity talk or like a sex talk or, you know, somebody gets up there like, sex is the best thing. And when you get married, it's so beautiful and wonderful. For people who are married, it's a part of their relationship. But it's not the greatest good. And I can say it. So that way if I'm looking at you and I'm like, you know what? In your state of life as single people, you're called to be a gift to your community, to your family, because that's why we made nuptial meaning of the body, to give to ourselves to another as gift, to sacrifice for another, to give yourselves as a gift to your friends, and to do that in an appropriate way that doesn't involve sexual activity. And in doing that, this is the key. Jesus, who gives himself as a gift to us and gives us a model of self-sacrifice, says when you do this in the relationships in your life, in the way that it's appropriate and with the boundaries that are given, you will find wholeness and redemption. That You will find the image and likeness of God restored within you. But that I can look at you and not say I'm depriving you of something because I'm not. Some of you are called to the priesthood, and you'll give your life over to the church. Some of you are called to religious life, and you'll give yourself over to Christ to serve and to pray. And these are very good things. These are places where our desire for community is elevated, where brokenness is released. This is a lot to wrestle with, because maybe it completely contradicts what you think. And as I said, you're free to disagree and argue and wrestle. That's what we should do with anything that someone presents to you, whether it's from a classroom, a lecture hall, a television program, an internet post, hopefully not a meme, but maybe. <laughs> Those 13 words in that picture changed my life. <laughs> but wrestle with it, because something in you may be stirring where you're like, maybe there's more to that. Because what if, we are broken by sin. What if Jesus has redeemed our bodies? What if he offers a path to integration and wholeness that's free, that's whole, that allows us to express love and receive love and be loved? You know the distortions that exist. I don't need to enumerate them. But did you know that there was a way to rise above them, to let go of them, to be free of them? There is. And we'll continue to wrestle with that today. I want to take some time to reflect a little bit more and to pray a little bit more. I think we have a couple, uh, a couple of clips that we've queued up. Do we have those uh, set to go for the reflection?
Sometimes our lives can get very broken. And one area of brokenness that exists in our world and has become far more accessible is uh, the pornography industry. Now, some of us may find ourselves as consumers of, of pornography. But there's always a person on the other end whose life exists in the same way, made in the image and likeness of God, but broken. At Life Team, I get the opportunity to help people tell really great stories, to tell their stories, how God's worked in their life. We had an opportunity to meet a woman named Robin and tell her story. I want to share that to you in case you're like, I'm, I'm broken in a lot of ways, and maybe it's a completely different way than Robin's broken, but just to show that regardless of where you are, there's healing, there's hope. And so I want us to make everything a prayer, but to make the next several minutes a prayer. And we'll do that by starting in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. I know what really goes on behind closed doors. A lot of us are um, tortured and we don't have much of a say in what's going on. The porn industry 100% harm people. cut me loose. They said, you're on your own. Good luck. And I was like, yes, oh my God, I've been fighting for my freedom for so long, but I don't have any life skills. Um, I didn't know how to hold a job. I didn't have a car. Um, I didn't have any emotional real skills except survival. I had a girlfriend that told, that told me she started exotic dancing and that I should do it with her. I was only 17 when she said that. Um, so I remembered the name of the strip club that she mentioned and she had glorified it. She taught me everything um, from how to walk and how to dance. They let me party the way that I want to party and these girls aren't so different from me. And I was already outcasted from society my whole childhood. So. What's the big deal, you know? I could get used to this. This guy who ended up being one of the main manipulators in my life um, referred me to a porn agent. She told me how beautiful I was and how I could do really good and um, I can make it do it on my own terms. And I was like, okay, that seems like, okay, I could try it once. From the very first shoot, um, they told, they were having me, kind of pressuring me to um, do things that I wasn't sure that I wanted to do. Once that door opened, now a, a lot of other things were going to get worse <laughs> or be possible that weren't possible before. So I had like convinced myself that I chose this. Um, it's okay because I'm making money and just give me the money and, get, and I'll get over it. It wasn't soon after I started doing movies that a director took me to the back of his house. He was filming in his house and he turned me out into what would be prostitution. 
where I just felt like um, obligated and, and I was so easily manipulated like I just believed what they said I wanted them to like me here I am alone in LA and if I, I know if you don't do what they want they'll blacklist you and I need every job that I can get I did not want to do it um, but I made myself do it My boyfriend had broken up with me. I had mutilated my wrists. And the only place I had to go was this um, up and coming rapper guy that said he had an extra room in his apartment. The guy who was letting me live with him came into the room with his friend and um, they proceeded to do the breaking process, which is what people do, traffickers do when they um, when they're trying to pimp out a girl, when they're trying to get them under their mind control. So I was the perfect um, victim for them. And they just start reaming me, screaming at me. I just cried and I kind of like went along with it. They left the room, but I knew that this was dangerous and that I needed to get the heck out of there as soon as possible. And it was really scary and that was a pretty dark time. I just wanted it to be over. I discovered that I was pregnant and um, that was it for me. Knowing that there was an innocent life growing inside me that I just would do anything in my power to um, give her a good life and to not drag her through the hell that I had been going through for so long. So I set out to figure out what that meant to be a good mom and to give her a good life, despite you know friends from LA insinuating that I should have an abortion. And I just hung up the phone and I never talked to those friends again. So I sought out all my resources. I um, hooked up with a pregnancy clinic and I started walking uh, every day, and when I would walk, I would just walk in circles, and I would just pray the same prayer every time, like, God, please um, transform me into the woman that you would have me be. Um, please heal me. And I believe that that's what has happened. I set out on this journey, like, um, determined that I was gonna learn how to be a good mom. She was just perfect. She was a little baby. She was a small baby. She's still petite, too. She's the smallest one in her class. Where's my phone? We got to practice your spelling test. Dress. Izzy will only wear a dress. I used to. <laughs> dress. D-R-E-S-S. Correct again. I just the things that she says to me, the way that she loves me, I don't know if all kids are like this, but it's pretty mind-blowing. I mean, like every single morning, she just like holds my face, look at me, let me see your beautiful face. I love you, you're the most special mama, you're my only mama. Oh, I love you so much, and I love my family. Would you want to walk around in the rain to look at lights, Izzy?
being alone with her in the hospital at night and she, she looked up at me with like these little baby deer eyes <laughs> and she you could just tell that she knew I was her mama she just like looked at me like she knew I was her mama and we made that connection it was like just so beautiful um, like everything that I had worked for and um, and overcame and like transformed left behind was like so um, worth it is like like a, the old me a lot of it died The porn industry 100% harmed people, not just the actors and the actresses, um, but the people who view it. It 100% contributes to the demand for purchasing children for sex. I think it breaks up marriages because the man thinks that his wife is supposed to be like this. So in that way, it's harming the whole public. But in the context of what it's doing to the people on screen, the long-term repercussions are totally detrimental, you know, socially, emotionally, um, physically for your health, um, to be, and to be able to become a, a productive member of society after that is really difficult to navigate. If I never got pregnant with Izzy, I would most likely be dead. I really believe that she's um, a really a special child, and um, and I believe that she was sent here specifically for me. And I just um, I just hope to pave the way for her. So I had every reason not to believe that I would be a good mom, but some kind of peace and and confidence washed over me and when I saw the pregnancy test um, strip saying positive, um, and I just knew that I was meant to do this. It's been a long journey of self-acceptance, and I think that's the greatest gift that I'm really learning now. Like I'm constantly teaching her what I need to learn or what I'm learning, so um, it just um, makes everything so much more real. And if she's so precious, then I'm so precious then too. It's one story of brokenness, but also healing. Your story maybe is different. Every person has a story. For some of you, maybe you're like, look, that, I understand we're really talking a lot about sexual sin. That's not an area of brokenness in my life. Well, maybe there's another area that you're separating yourself from God. For some of you, maybe it is. I would be a very awful person if I believed that you were loved, you were worthy, that you were made in the image and likeness of God, that you have a plan for your life, a plan for freedom, a plan for hope, a plan for greatness, a plan for heaven. And if I also believed that there were things in this world that could hurt you or harm you or stop you from that plan, and I knew that there was a way for you to be healed from that, for me to be healed from that, for our world to be healed from that, for us to experience true love and affection and community. I'd be such a jerk if I didn't say anything. You can disagree with it again. Like that's, but for me, my own convictions, if I really believe something that strongly, 
and I didn't tell you, and I didn't share it, and I didn't, because not because I want to shame you, but because I want to give you hope and happiness, because the team here wants to bring you hope and happiness. These priests who have sold out their life for the Lord, that the sister who's here who sold out her life for the Lord, believe it so strongly they give their life for it, and we were like, man, but you don't need to hear it. Who does that? We'd be horrible, horrible people. Now, Maybe you look at things like this and you're like, wow, that's pretty serious. And I guess if my life ever got to that rock bottom point, like I would, I'd have a conversion moment too. And there's a, a, a subtlety that we can maybe tell ourselves, well, but it's not to that point yet, so I'm okay. The worst thing that can happen in your life is not that you hit rock bottom and then you have a conversion moment. The worst thing that can happen in your life is you never quite make it there so you can continue to tell yourself that everything's fine when you're slowly dying. Robin became aware that there was an area of brokenness in her life that was hurting her, holding her back and destroying her dignity. We can become aware of those things too without having like a rock bottom kind of experience. And I want to offer you an opportunity to do that in prayer today. So in a minute, but not yet, you can move around the room to find a space that's comfortable and away from other people who maybe are distracting. I would like it to be a place where you can see one of these two screens. We're going to put on the screens what's called an examination of conscience. It's going to walk through... Seven areas of the seven deadly sins, you may have, have heard them referred that way. We call them, church, seven capital sins. Seven big areas where we break our relationship with God. And we're going to put them up on the screen, and then following each one, there's going to be some phrases that will help you think of, are there areas of brokenness and sin in my life? Some of the phrases may come up and not relate to you at all. Some may come up and you start to journal and write, and that's all you write about the rest of the time. The idea of an examination of conscience, like what we're going to play, is to help us be mindful of areas where we're falling short so we can approach the Lord for healing with them in the sacrament of reconciliation, so we can be mindful of places we fall so as to not fall again, so we can take steps to find healing and counseling and help. That's why we do this. The first step in redemption is an awareness of our own sin, of our own brokenness. And so, in a minute... But not yet. I'll let you know. You can quietly spread out around the room and look at the screen. We'll journal a little bit through the reflection. It's not a super long video reflection. And then just hold. You don't need to show other people that piece of paper. But here are a couple of things that I'll, I'll offer up to you moving forward so we can roll right into our small groups after this reflection. One, if there's areas of sin in your life, I'm like, I can't hold on to this anymore. There are priests here who can hear your, hear your reconciliation. When we go to the sacrament of reconciliation, it's not asking Jesus for mercy. It's accepting the mercy he's already given us on the cross. Jesus isn't selective. He dies for all. And so we approach him and say, Lord, I need healing and forgiveness. And he's like, here it is. It's right here. But like any gift, we can reject it or not come to accept it. That's the beautiful thing about love and mercy, right? It's a gift and we have to accept it. Otherwise, it's not love and it's not mercy. The second thing you can do is maybe pray over those things if there's areas of habitual sin and start to say, what do I need to do to overcome these things? Are there people I need help with? Are there situations I need help with? Is this brokenness maybe a little bit deeper than I can tackle on my own? So maybe you go to reconciliation and then after that you go and you seek out some of those areas where you avoid those same pitfalls. And the third thing, again, if you have been the victim of some kind of abuse, especially sexual abuse, maybe it's time to recognize those things and bring it forward. There are people here who can talk to you and help you through the next steps. I've walked that, that path with several people, um, teenagers and adults, and it's tough. But 
it's worth it. And so the team is here, if, if that's you as well, as you kind of pray through this. Um, my, my hope is that people leave here free. And I hope you'd want that too. And so we're going to put that reflection up on the screen. You have 30 seconds to quietly get up and just find a space in the room where you can see the screen, but where you won't be distracted and where you can have a little bit of privacy. Go ahead and do that. And in about 30 seconds, we'll start the video reflection. <laughs>